Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. In this episode, Nick Sherrod of Label Sessions talks to Pat Kane. Pat is a creative innovator whose reach spans music, journalism, and now the future. From his book, The Play Ethic, he's bridged the gap between play and innovation, lending his mind to brands like Lego and Nokia, to organizations in the Scottish government and the BBC. As he describes himself, he is incurably, inescapably interested in the new, the original, and the groundbreaking. Nick talks to him to find out more. Excellent. So, Pat, great to have you uh, with us. And I'm glad I don't have to introduce you because I said to you before, you do so many different things. It's quite hard to introduce you without lots of slashes or commas or all the different things. How would you introduce, how would you describe yourself and what you do today? Well, I'm kind of fated to be the guy that exemplifies that hated term, uh, creative. Um, and I sort of, I, I sometimes say I'm the guy who my mother sat down in front of a 10-finger touch typing course in 1976. And that's the best thing that ever happened to me because it meant I was able to jump from writing lyrics to doing radio shows to doing journalism to doing curating to updating myself on the next compact or laptop. So I'm a kind of generally capable semiotic warrior, let's call it that. I quite I, I I'm I'm trained in literary uh, literary criticism and semiotics from and film studies and TV studies from my university days, and that's basically my basic training is to kind of is to look at culture uh, against the grain, take it apart, put it back together again, see if there's something in the ruins that indicates something's coming around the corner, uh, and I think I've been doing that since I was um, well before 17 years old, but it came to a focus when I was doing. When I was at college, university, and finding out about how uh, how deep uh, cultural creativity goes in people, and then and then basically working wise, I've always just wanted to surround myself with those kinds of people and see what we can do together. So that whether that's a band or whether that's an editorial floor in a newspaper or whether that's Scump Works in a large corporation or whether it's you know curating uh, the twenty twenty two festival. Of, or doing things like Future Fest, um, which I did for Nesta. All of it is about hanging out with similarly creative people, putting dents in the universe. So it's interesting. So you, the way you describe it, all seems beautifully joined up. I think a lot of other people might see musician, uh, futurist, author, these as quite different scenes. Does it feel like that? Or does it, the way you're expressing it is it feels like it's one continuous journey? There's a, there's a couple of fundamentals. I mean, I think one of the one of the fundamentals would be um, having a kind of uh, unalienated relationship to technology, or an expressive relationship to technology, and sort of expecting that that's what tech will do, um, uh, in the sense of it not just being efficient but generating possibilities. I mean, my favorite story in this is when the first time we came upon a sampler in New York in 1987. And the reason why we had to use it was because the horn section that we'd used the day before, which was Tom Waits' horn section, the uptown horns, had all gotten drunk and so couldn't make the second half of the session the next day. And so a, an engineer came in with this gigantic box and said, let's use this. We can copy them and stack them up. It's called a sampler. Uh, and that was in 87. So so the fact that, so the fact that we live in a kind of digital chaos you know of copying and mixing and morphing and shaping 
um, which sort of fell upon us in the mid-90s, we were already, as musicians, using this kind of technology, simulatory technology, to kind of work out creative problems, to get great results. Uh, and you can go all the way back. With that, you can go all the way back into 20th century music history to, to have that relationship. Sinatra cradling the microphone closer to his face so that he could produce this inhuman effect, effect of intimacy. So I, the one of your questions in advance was, you know, how does, how, does, how does music connect up with thinking about the future or thinking about creativity? I think it's, a, I think it's one of these master skills. Other people, uh, you know, when, um, when uh, Malcolm Gladwell was talking about outliers and people doing their 10,000 hours, so certainly, I would say I've certainly counted up more than 10,000 hours when I, when I apply myself to music. But I think that idea that you know Bill Gates sitting in a computer room just battering away at coding gives him gives him a creative advantage. I think that that's what that's what music has done in my life for the last forty five years. Is it's given me number one this um, dynamic creative unalienated relationship with new technologies uh, for fun, profit, and community, and I'm very appreciative of that. It's, 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 it's interesting because it's, it's uh, a kind of way of interacting with the idea of planet of, of foresight and the future and tech, which is uh, really powerful, but also quite different to the way a lot of people do it currently. There is a kind of scene of futurism and foresight that's very analytical and uh, it's not necessarily, well, it's not seen as a creative enterprise. It's seen as something that's a kind of almost a branch of economics in some, in some, in some areas. I mean, do, do, do you see that happening around you and think that's just a short-sighted way of doing it? Do you find that your practice opens up different avenues or do you just, or do you just ignore that kind of uh, futurist scene that exists? No, sure. But I mean, as a, as a young sci-fi propeller head to this very day, you, to to staffing science fiction um, is a kind of way a kind of pop cultural futurism often, uh, and it's joy driven. You you want your genre to deliver your technological buzz and your alternative society, so it has that kind of cognitive fun about it. So I've always like I've always been proud of having music in my life. I've always had science fiction in my life, but there's there's two aspects to this. One would be those those two William Gibson phrases. You know, you probably know the one I'm going to say, which is the future is here. It's not evenly distributed. But there's another one. He says the street has its uses. You know, so that when things become sort of banal and unusable, and, and and people are starting to use them to create scenes or environments or situations, uh, that's when the technology is is bringing the future into the present. You know, I mean, Chat ChatGPT being the classic example of 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 a of a way in which um, a human centered interface brings massive rebarbative abstract computational capacity onto your phone at the bus stop. I mean, to me, that's that that sense of the magical and the banal and in every day gains very pop music, gains very science fiction, but a very science fiction culture. Um, but I think it's I think it's a, a warmer way to think about how novelty and the new emerges in the everyday than to sit down with your your foresight and your four quadrant analysis and your matrix your matrix and and try to kind of extrapolate. I think often um, and certainly, certainly, I think there's a kind of everyday futurism at the moment when when you're a social media user. Um, people are tying out futures, whether they compose them through mid journey or whether they do them in a stunt or whether they even try to create a whole new business model through uh, immediate social media use. It's a very playful, 
point of word uh, environment at the moment. There's lots of malleability and possibility in in all directions. And I think the mentality. Um, I think the one last thing I would say about the salience of pop music is I actually did a, a piece the other week um, on the top 10 downloads of 2023 music downloads so far. Did a wee bit of a semantic analysis of them. Eight of them are about either intense love or intensely falling out of love or having intense sex. Um, I think one of them was about mental illness and I can't remember what the 10th what the one was. I think it was another kind of braggadocio. But that's that's what pop music, pop music is kind of emotionally utopian, you know, uh, and, and it's it's elemental. There's something evolutionary, of evolutionary biology being communicated uh, in the semantics of pop songs day in, day out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out. So to ta- again, to tap into that kind of fundamental species optimism of being human, particularly in this environment, Nick, uh, is again a very, a very helpful resource and I would propose it as a helpful resource to to people abroad yeah it's, it's an interesting thing I think that the uh, especially if you look at AI uh the only way to understand it is to play with it and to see how people are playing with it in practice you know it's it's, a, it's an interesting time around all of that I want to pick up on this idea of playfulness so it, uh, it just because it's such a key thing for you and some people listen to this will have read play I think I know that because lots of people around the label at different points have referenced it oh that's nice that's and, nice and, and I think for a lot of them it for people that don't know the book, it's it's uh, it was a grand project, right? Because it was taking taking play more seriously across a whole range of things from education to to, to science uh, and business as well. Yeah, exactly, and, and and business as well. But how did that come? Is that again? Is that something that's always been within you as a creative? You've always kind of taken that seriously, and it gradually grew from there. Or was there a moment when you thought actually play is a bigger part of my projects? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the original f- phrase of play ethic was a kind of riff on, uh, for, for sociology fans, uh, Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic or The Protestant Work Ethic and The Spirit of Capitalism. And I was just doing a bit of riffing and saying, well, what would the spirit of informationalism be? This is around about mid, the mid-90s, as in what would the spirit of the information society as opposed to the industrial society be? And the original term I came up with was the New Age Ethic and the Spirit of Informationalism. And I thought, no, that's not going to work. Uh, and and but what would it mean to be talking about play? Um, now, what I, what I sort of realised even when I began to start my my research is that was in nineteen ninety seven. Book came out in two thousand and four. Uh, that was the kind of the height of kind of or the height of new labour. And so the the whole idea that there could be a new labour, uh, what what would that new labour be? Would it be play? And and what what would play mean in that circumstance was was broil, broiling around in my head. Uh, that was the time as well when sort of creative industries was invented as a kind of category. I think by Chris Smith as a sort of government category as as a thing to manage in a in a, in a nation. Um, so, but the thing about play is that it's a sort of crossroads. It's, it's a conduit to so many different aspects of the of the, the human condition, and. One of the things I loved about it was that it was both um, descriptive of where we were in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, with a a burgeoning digital culture, with games culture beginning to kind of expand and explore, um, you know, music already sort of dominating the mainstream discussion. Um, Tools, playful tools becoming more available to people in terms of the social media beginning to kind of kick off. 
um, playing with knowledge, you know, using Google just to kind of follow completely follow your your nose and your and your interests and your instincts. So the actual uh, posh word ontological reality that I was in was a was was malleable and playful, and that and that as a result of digitality. Uh, and I think that persists right right up to the present. I mean, right up to the present. You really, I mean, super Musk, uh, super Musk. Elon Musk is the kind of super player of the moment. I don't want to call him Super Musk. That would be a disaster. (laughs) A few years ago, he was like an entrepreneur from the Marvel Universe. It's kind of all same thing where he's now kind of this kind of shriveled, (laughs) sort of ugly figure in our culture now. Well, no doubt ready to regenerate himself. You know, the one one thing you can say about Elon Musk uh, today uh, uh, as a consequence of thinking about play over the last 20 years is that he's a, he's an advert for its virtue. I mean, just in terms of his ability to kind of turn imagination into reality and believe that he has the boldness to do it, and also he partakes of the kind of the playful the essence of the playful mentality, which is to take matter lightly, you know, not to ignore matter, not to project fantasy on it, but to presume that you can do things with it. And he's drenched in science fiction. Was was talking the other day before he's part fight with the uh, Zuckerberg that the reality the, the reality of the universe bends towards the most entertaining outcome and the most entertaining outcome is the most likely so um no matter what I mean I have my problems with him on every single level politically economically and even te- technologically but I would be I would be a, a churl to deny that he is driven by uh, a play ethic uh, or at least a ludic ethic uh, and that's and he's the outcome uh, of a kind of a generation that uh, of of entrepreneurs and innovators uh, that that have brought play into the into the core of the way that they see themselves and that they see see the world. Um, I mean, creative destruction is almost the, uh, in terms of the Schumpeterian model of entrepreneurship is almost exactly what happens in play from from birth. Anyway, you know, the child plays things, plays with things, pulls them together, puts them back together, and thereby understands the world. Um, and I think it's I think I thought in two thousand, in nineteen ninety seven to two thousand and four, when I brought out the book, I thought that it was going to be uh, the secret power of of the mid twenties, um, and I think I've been proved right. Uh, and I think I had, there was a phrase, there was a meme or an axiom that I've sent out called out, "Play is to twenty first century what work was to the to the twentieth. Play is a matter of uh, knowing, doing, and creating value." Uh, and I, I think I think the environment would prove me completely right. Except now the things are, now the things are starting to play with us when it comes to AI, which is a completely different frontier as well. Yeah, that is a big point, and there's an interesting thing there as well. I think in terms of the times, because actually it's interesting when you look back at play ethic now, is that one of the things it was responded responding to in the UK was the kind of work ethic aspect aspect of new labour uh, and that kind of sense of uh, yeah, trying to put a frame of work around. Um, the arts and around the creative scene also for the kind of innovation community that might be listening to this as well a lot it was also when design thinking was starting to come through much that's, more heavily that's right ideal, kind of ideal process. people like this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. which again was a similar kind of ethos around the whole thing we can take this uh we can take these kind of messy process and we can make it very neat and we can make it something that people understand in a work frame and we can make the individuals less important to it so it all becomes repeatable whereas now on all levels it feels like that kind of that kind of world is um, at least less effective because it doesn't seem like the way you're going to explore this new world that's coming. Um, and especially to get any of the value from it either in a kind of 
classic business sense or in terms of just making things possible sense? Well, no, sure. But I mean, I, I, I did, I did, um, I did think quite deep, deeply in the book, and the the whole the whole work play distinction I tried to break down, uh, and I tried to instead of the the whole thing that was current at the time of the book was the idea of work life balance, which is painfully schizophrenic, right? You know, at one side, so and, and also it renders active work as something you hate to do and your life, active life is something you'd prefer to do. So you really you're in this kind of dichotomous schizoid kind of situation. Whereas I was thinking, imagine, imagine if we managed to grasp uh, the productive and wealth potential of, of, of automation and other kinds of ro robotized technologies and lived in a play care continuum as opposed to a work-life balance. And so play being how we respond to possibilities and care being how we respond to limitations and exhaustions. And when you fall off the, the, the tightrope and, and hit, the, hit the trampoline, how do you, how do, is that, are those, is play and care a set of polarities that might work for us if we manage to get a certain distance from uh, material necessity? Um, again, I think you can see in the, in the, in the, in the Zs and the Alphas, kind of balance between play and care uh, and a bit of a collapse in the work ethic, or at least a collapse in the idea that this particular job and this particular career and this particular professional occupation is going to, map out a narrative for you going forward. Whereas I would say that they are very interested in care, certainly interested in self-care, interested in health care, interested in mental care, care of their friends, their scenes, their environment. And they're also, also straightforwardly interested in play and not just in trivial ways. I think the whole culture around crypto and Web3 has been subconsciously playful. And I don't think that's any, I don't, again, I don't think that's an accident. I think that comes out of games culture and how people have been playing with currencies and values in games culture. But it, it, the rubber hit the road when it's come, when it's come to austerity and uh, cost of living crisis. Uh, so, so the, I think, again, I think I'm reasonably, I was reasonably prophetic there, reasonably. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I wanted to pick up on a thing here as well. So one of the things interesting in the work that we do at the Label Sessions is you sort of see people uh, and talk about why things are happening in different places. And one thing you've already picked up on, which we come across so consistently, we need to kind of draw out the data, is that People that are making things happen in all kinds of walks of life just now are sci-fi nerds at some point in their life. Like this is the, this is the way in which we actually explore the future, and there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that comes from it. The second thing, though, is also people, um, especially people that are really occupied with thinking about what comes next and foresight and futurism, is uh, people realizing that actually the geographic place they are is giving them uh, sometimes an advantage into seeing certain things coming. Um, just for you, how does that feel? So you've been based out, the one thing that's been constant during this time, you've been based out of the unit of the UK, at least, sometimes Scotland, sometimes London. Do you feel that influences the way you think about what's next or the kind of the way you think about what's just happened as well in terms of the last few years of digital? Well, um, I mean, another, to be, to be honest, another factor in this is that I have had a long-term relationship with uh, Indonesian Buddhist in my life. So I, I live with a different, again, to use the posh words, ontology and epistemology, but reality, uh, uh, day in, day out. And I, and I speak as a resolute scientific materialist. 
So I, 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 I encounter the idea that not just the, the, the progress of a particular uh, commercial and industrial or technological sector might be different, but that the way that you relate to other human beings might be different culturally across the world. The way that you think of the of reality being a sort of a dead or a, or a lively process might be quite different. So I I would I would say certainly being in post imperial Britain, uh, being in uh, a Scotland that uh, wants to kind of have a civic argument about nationalism as opposed to an ethnic argument about nationalism and sees that as a tool to progress, uh, has has it's certainly being part of this. I wouldn't say failing state, but certainly buckling state, um, makes you think about the limitations of modernity. Again, that's another big term. What I mean by that is that the model is bust for so many different reasons and for so many historical reasons. And that there is a lot to learn, you know, from cultures that are not as philosophically Cartesian as our own. So the idea that me, the sovereign part grasping onto the world and Shape, shaping in a certain way is such is such such an unspoken and unrecognized um, cultural conceptual fundamental for how we live on on these islands and and in Europe uh, and I I mean I, I'm I'm totally intrigued and excited and interested to know what innovation comes out of you know African energy solar energy generating leapfrogging you know or or Confu Confucian Janist uses of surveillance network technology. You know, to, to what are the new social contracts that we have to be ready for, um, uh, aided and abetted by certain kinds of technology, or supporting different kinds of technological relations, making things seem natural to themselves that seem unnatural or or, or coercive or overly transparent or overly controlling. But I think there's a, I think there's a. I think there's a there's some deep deep cultural fundamentals that we have to kind of think about when we think about innovation in different parts of the world these days, um, and I've never I've never felt more like a kind of west uh, westerner in that sense. And and but what I would say is that I think one of the things that play ethic and my study in play uh, reminds us is that almost all the way, certainly from the Romantics all the way through to the surrealists, all the way through up to the beats, then to the 60s and the counterculture, that there has been an internal critique of Western modernity, capitalist modernity, consumerist modernity, bureaucratic modernity from the inside, and and that it has had good effects. You know, it's, it's, it's pushed the system in certain directions. There's always been a countercultural response. What's brilliant about the... Um, the book The Dawn of Everything by Graeber and Vengro is that they say don't just don't just imagine that that counterculture existed say since the 19th century romantics imagine that it was there 10,000 years before the 10,000 years of agriculture that we've just gone through and the, 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 the number one my number one intellectual firework of the last 12 months has been their conclusion in The Dawn of Everything that the the process which allows social social forms and organizations and ways of doing things and ways of, of, of extracting values in the world, the one core thing that enables that to happen is ritual play. Ritual play is a way for people to, uh, over this long 20,000 BC period, has been a way for people to test out new ways of living together and new ways of doing things and new ways of dealing with nature. So I'm like, thank you, ka-ching. You know, you, you, I've, I've, 
the, 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 the mallet has gone down on the fairground bell ringer and it's rung at the top. Thank you very, thank you very much. I mean, they're they're philosophical and political anarchists, so that that granted. But if if their science is even half right, if their archaeology is even half right, we have been doing ritual play to create new niches in our social lives amongst other social creatures for a long, long, long time. And that's the just the final bit that's really constantly fascinating me at the moment um, is the the biological and evolutionary aspect of play, the way that it connects us. Not just mammal to mammal across species, but mammal to cephalopod, mammal to corvid to crow. The play as a kind of a consequence of being a, co a more complex animal. And I love, that's the thing I'm really exploring at the moment when we're all trying to figure out how do we feel that we protect nature by identifying with it or loving it as, as, as one of the, sort of the great um, psychological tricks that people are trying to play in the climate movement. But I think animals playing with each other and us playing with animals is a great way for us to sort of feel our creatureliness in a very playful and a uh, very enjoyable and sensual and um fun way uh, it's not the hair shirt it's not the ecological hair shirt it's the ecological parliament of and uh, uh, community that we are actually part of when we see play and play with play with animals that's a uh, yeah okay. I'm fascinated to start bringing this into some of the things we are doing um, soon. But one of the things I just want to just just quickly sort of bring this to head around is one of the things that's interesting actually with your point around the counterculture, how how it exists inside things. In a sense, it kind of exists inside lots of institutions just now. Actually, when we were advising uh, people that either run companies or government departments or these kind of things, there's a sense of everything's up for question at the moment. Um, Good. Yeah, exactly. But do you, what advice do you have to people, I guess, because in terms of there's all this going on, you're then trying to put that yourself into action in terms of how you go forward. If you were advising a leader who's facing into some of these kind of questions, how do you start to uh, take some of this hinterland and start to start to apply it or think about how you approach things next? Well, I mean, my, my only uh, gambit in this, um, which I think has ever had any kind of healing, is to talk to business leaders about what they think the wellsprings of adaptability are for their organization slash organism. Because if you look at the organization as an organism, um, what's one of the things I've been looking at over the last couple of years is the whole neuroscience of play and the sociobiology of play, the evolutionary psychology of play. And it's, and, but it goes really all the way down. The, the, an organism has to have room to play. Uh, and the reason why it does that is because uh, organisms often get trapped into niches in nature. They get stuck in ruts and they have to find a way to experiment how to get out of that rut, how to even see how they can get out of that rut, whether there are new, new fields or rich fields or beyond. And the organisms have to reserve a quanta of energy and wriggle room. Uh, the, the, the physicist um, Stuart Kaufman calls it the adjacent possible. There has to be an adjacent possible around an organization or an organism to enable it to, to survive in tough competitive environments uh, by making moves that genuinely move you to newer fertile fields or newer, more fertile relationships with others. And that's that to me, that crosses over quite straightforwardly. I mean, I remember many way back in the, in the 90s, one would quote the Google 20% rule, uh, which is the idea that um, many of their best products came from that process of, of a coder be, being allowed to play with their job on the job and coming up with things that then would feed into, I think Gmail was a classic outcome of that. Then they moved that to X 
that whole fa- that whole facility to X, uh, Google X being how can we have an 10x, 20x, 100x improvement, you know, and often the only way you would get there is by living in science fiction, right? is imagining something that was just preposterous and then trying to reverse engineer it in terms of the, the creativity of the organization. So I'm happy to hear that a lot of organizations are thinking that to be properly adaptive, to be able to respond to ex- maybe exponentially changing circumstances that they have to create a zone of play or a ground of play, I would often call it in the book. Uh, there's a beautiful phrase by the Russian play, the Russian uh, educational psychologist Zygotsky. Uh, it's, it's geeky, but it's perfect because he says it, play requires a proximal zone of development, uh, a ZPD, um, a, pro- a proximal zone of development. So you need wriggle room. You need play in this in your own systems for possibilities to come through. And then in terms of leadership, I think you need to be thinking of yourself as, you know, the most enabling parent, you know, who's looking, who's, who's, who's secured the playground, who allows for a certain amount of play, uh, uh, but makes the play not fatal, not if injurious, then culpable with, you know, uh, this is, this is the great, the, the most, one of the loveliest lessons for leaders from biology is that strictly speaking, play is like sex and sleep and dreaming. Play should be maladaptive. You know, you open yourself out to injury, you waste energy, you do things that don't seem to have any clear utility, and yet there it is uh, preeminently as part of the human condition. But it is obviously, it is adaptive, but it's not adaptive in that strict survival sense for social, imaginative, networked, complex creatures. You need zones of experiment and prototype to survive and thrive, to propagate your genes. So I think it's a straightforward organism, organization, crossover. It's at least worth exploring. And the other thing I would say as well is that what's the interest I've often been brought in to talk to organizations about creativity and innovation. And I say, you've pulled me in to talk about play. And really there's a sequence here. There's play, playfulness, creativity, innovation. Innovation is kind of at the end of the process. And play is at the beginning because what you're dealing with is you're dealing with your workforce or your colleagues as mammalian creatures you know you know he who must play cannot play as james carl's the theologian's great injunction so play is an indicator of autonomy it's one of the best indicators of autonomy and so if you want to increase autonomy in your colleagues and 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 workforce talk about play and talk about the conditions of play if you don't don't um, but 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 that's in terms of people's um, the war for talent, in terms of people's motivation to be in an organisation. To me, an organisation that gets the basic science of play is going to make moves to make people feel genuinely valued for their creative autonomy. Um, and I think that's that sets behind playfulness is is maybe the mood that you want to inculcate in certain areas of your organisation. Creativity is the spread of ideas that comes out. Uh, to be useful, adaptable, useful innovation is their impl- implementation. But talk about play. We talk. We talk about the health and wealth, uh, personal wealth and and spirit of the people that you're with and your and your companus and your and your entity that, that breaks bread together convivially. Uh, and I think that's I, I, that would be one of my my messages to leaders: were they willing to listen? I think there will be some soon. Now, uh, I, there's loads of what I want more to talk about on that, but we'll have to do it on different projects. Um, I just want to get people to know you a little bit, so I'm going to ask you some annoying quick-fire questions. Uh, okay. Just, 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 to round us, just to round us off. 
Uh, just a top thing that comes to your mind. What do you think is overhyped right now? Populist nationalism. You know, the, the idea that people are just scared of the future and will return to a security-oriented homeostatic state. I, I have Maybe I'm a fool, but I, I think I've read enough into the human scientific condition to know that that's not enough. These, this viewpoint, hold on to nurse for fear of something worse, will not persist. Where do you go to feed your brain creatively? I'll cu I curate my social media very carefully. Um, if, I can, if I can get to Blackwells in Edinburgh or Foils in London, I'm doing very well for an afternoon. Uh, I, use my, I use my mobile phone to snap book covers without necessarily buying the books and get chased out of the bookshop often for doing so. Um, and, and, and it's hanging out with musicians. First time I ever heard about uh, Bitcoin was, was hanging out with musicians who were trying to make money out of it. So that's, that, would be, that would be my three sources. Good. And this may be uh, triggering based on what else I know is going on in your life just now, but what would 18-year-old you be most most surprised by about you today? Oh, you do this because you're going through your archive right now, you said before this call. So this is, yeah, that's, uh, this is relevant. That's, <laughs> yeah. I think I think you would be surprised at um, my nihilism. And, it's, and the nihilism in the sense of, um, I think one of the consequences of culture wars and, and woke culture for some, not for others, and certainly for this white male right here, is sort of realizing what our mode of agency has wreaked upon the earth. So I and I I think that's a that melancholy. I think is a is a I find it a great input into the way I go about things and the way I think about things. So I would be so given how absurdly ready to go I was at eighteen, I would be surprised that I had this sort of slightly absurdist sense of reality. Um, um, but I think the 18 year old would rec would recognize uh, the kind of the idealistic activist's utopian desire to get beyond that. But I think he would he would say you're a bit mis you're a bit mis part. <laughs> Just two more. Uh, what are three things you could not live without? That would be that would be smartphone. That would be my Buddhist love Indra, um, and my brother. Actually, my musical brother, who is uh, a genius and uh, an unheralded, underheralded genius, those three. And then the last one, on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? 10. I can say answers. <laughs> Thanks very <12. really> much, Pat. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to end. Uh, thanks so much, Pat. That's, amazing. that's really interesting. I'm, Thank I'm, you, 14. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.